Hi, everybody. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. I, I love being able to come down here every so often and fill in and, you know, kind of be back here in Mission Viejo. I, you know, I went to school around here, went to high school around here, and so fun to be back in this area. But good to be with you guys, and I, I should um, give you a sense before we kind of get going. I, I, um, what Barbara didn't say is I, I teach a, um, a gathering of people on the Irvine campus on Sunday nights, um, so that's sort of my, my, regular, my regular gig is to teach a, um, um, on Sunday nights at the chapel at Mariner's Irvine, and, um, but I really, I really do love being, being here and being with you guys, so it's fun to be back, and some, you know, some folks I actually have known from growing up and stuff I see around, and so very fun to be here, but... Um, I should tell you before we get started, there's, we have a lot to cover. It's going to be really great, but I won't be able to cover everything that you're going to want to. There's some things I'm just going to have to leave out. You're going to go, I wish he would have said more, or thank God he's finished because you know, he rambled on forever or whatever. But I won't be able to get to everything. So, um, but I'm really excited about it. This series has been awesome. If you're new with us and you aren't familiar with what we've been doing for a while, um, across all of our campuses is a series on uh, uh, the letter by a guy named Paul to the churches or the gatherings of Christians in, um, in and around the city of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And the whole, the whole title of the series has been ID, as an identification, like show me your ID. And the, the subtitle is Becoming Who You Are. And we've had great, I mean, I've had great conversations with people who are saying, you know, gosh, these are things I never knew that were intended. I had no idea this is who God actually declares me to be. And so um, it's been very, very fun. And I'm really, really excited to be able to, to teach with you guys today. So why don't we pray and we'll, we'll jump into it and let's keep going. Jesus, we thank you that you meet us here. Thank you that whether we're curious about who you are or we're convinced or we're trying to figure out, maybe we're coming back home to you, Jesus, that in some way, God, we pray that in this space and in this sort of gathering of people, God, you would be, um, you'd be known to us in a new and a fresh and exciting way. And so, God, we pray that, um, that we would, you know, God, we would be able in some way or another to um, give you this time as much as we're able, and that you would speak to us right where we are, and that we'd walk out of here perhaps a little bit different, maybe knowing you a little bit different, or maybe even realizing something about how you view us differently. So it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so if you, um, well, I'll just do this. In, in my house, in my family, we have this phrase that we say to our kids, we, and my wife and I announce it to ourselves too, but we say it all the time, and it is, we say this to our kids, we say, we are outside people. We are outdoors people. And we, we say it loudly and clearly all the time. So yesterday, Saturday, we, you know, we are outdoor people. We are outside people. And that's about, it comes at about about a quarter afternoon while we're eating breakfast in our pajamas and we've now watched four episodes of the Cake Boss Marathon and we've now decided, look at each other, we all look at our, my wife, and we're like, okay, we're outside people, everybody, we got, we're outside people, we're outside people. And the implications for that kind of like identity are kind, you can kind of already figure out what those things mean. They're, they're not explicit, but they're implied. We're outside people. So we create structures in our family as much as we're able <laughs> to create outside kind of outdoor identities, or sort of, I should say, to reinforce the outdoor identity. So like our neighbor, for instance, he's allowed to watch as much TV as he wants, or, you know, he's a fifth grader, or sixth grader, he's allowed to watch as much TV as he wants, he can play video games all day long, that's, that's what he's allowed to do, he would not be what I would consider an outdoor person, right? Now, we have all the same things that our neighbor does, but we say to our kids, we're outdoor people, we're outside people, so we have to create structures that reinforce that kind of living. So we ride our bikes a lot of places. We, you know, we have to go to the store to pick something up. Occasionally, we'll ride our bikes there. You know, I have, I have kids who are seven and five and almost three. So it's a little bit of a nightmare to try and get them to ride bikes without getting killed. 
Um, but we do that. When we go to the pool, we ride our bikes there. We go to the pool all the time. There's 22 pools in our neighborhood. We actually had an event um, a, couple, a, couple, a couple weeks ago where we actually had about 75 or 80 people from our elementary school swim at every single pool in our neighborhood in one afternoon, including the adult pools and stuff. People were really excited to see a bunch of you know, five and six-year-olds jumping in their pool, you know, expecting no one to be there. But anyway, we do outside activities. We have... Um, in my neighborhood, I live on an alley. A very, it's not that trafficked of an alley. So I know all the cars that come down there, which people are, belong there, which people don't. And what we do is we, I take a big piece of chalk and I have my daughter push me around on my skateboard and I draw a big track for the kids to ride their scooters and bikes on. And, and our whole, all of our neighborhood plays out there. We put our little, um, we have a skateboard ramp, bike ramp. It's the shape of a trapezoid, which I can't make with my arms. <laughs> but you know what, it's a tra- trapezoid shape. And the kids ride their bikes over it and we let them do that. We let them run outside and be sweaty and get dirty and potentially fall and hurt themselves. These are things we allow our kids to do. When we eat dinner, a lot of times we'll grab a picnic basket and we'll take our family over to the park and we'll eat outside. And we invite our neighbors to come and eat dinner with us outside because we're outdoor people. We're outside people, right? And we'll even do this. My son is so super obsessed with baseball that, you know, if if there's one other kid anywhere, he can figure out how to make that into a baseball game, even if it's a one versus one baseball game. He'll figure out how to make a game happen. But what we'll do is we'll go to the park and we'll take um, wooden stakes. We'll put them out on the outside. of the, make, We'll make our own little outfield fence and we'll you know, put caution tape or whatever around the outside of it. And we'll set up our own little home run derby because we're outside people. This is the kind of things that we encourage. My daughter, who's five, she'll, if you meet her, we encourage her a little budding gymnastics talent and we'll tell her, you know, you know you're, do cartwheels wherever you want. She'll show you if you meet her, for, I mean, probably in a matter of three or four minutes. She'll invite you to observe her do a cartwheel. You know, like, she's real shy and then she'll just immediately start going like, you know, start doing this, whatever. So it's our desire that our kids would know over and again that, there are, that they would live out of this identity of being outdoor people. Now, there are, you know, this is, this is kind of what we're getting after. Now, Paul, the guy who's writing this letter to the early church in Ephesus, what he's actually doing is he's already declared them for three chapters. If you've been with us for the whole series, he's declared for three chapters who these people are. You people who belong to Jesus. He begins, he, there's only one command in the first three chapters, and it's the word remember. Everything else is about these statements about who you are. Saints, holy people, belonging to God. The temple, the dwelling place of God, God's masterpiece. He says all these things over and over again to reinforce the identity of who these people are. And then in chapter 4, he begins to start explaining or setting up or establishing structures that reinforce the identity for these people. So if you want to open your Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 is where we're kind of starting here, and let's just start there. So he says this, so I tell you this, again, Paul's talking here, he says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in, their futili- in the futility of their thinking. Now, Paul is saying to a group of people who are made up of Jews and Gentiles, anybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile. And he's saying to a group of people who have gathered, I mean, this is a letter that's being read to a gathering of Christians, and he says to them, don't live like the Gentiles. There's people in the room who would fall into the category of Gentiles. And he says, don't live like the Gentiles. Which means he must be making some kind of distinction between the kind of people who now belong to Jesus as Gentiles and the rest of the world that, is no, that does not belong to them. And he says... I I tell you this and insist on. In other words, this is a really, really big deal. What I want you to do is to understand that you Gentiles who are in this room are not the same as the Gentiles out there. And what you have to think is, don't live like them. 
this section of, the, of, the, of this letter to the churches in Ephesus is one in which he's telling people, sort of, I guess you could say, his exhortation is to live a radically different life than the other world that's out there. Now, when he's talking about Gentiles, sometimes that, you know, that's, that's, um, that's often translated as just the word Greeks. Now, the Greeks are, have, a, have a way of living to which Paul says, don't live like them. But to the Greeks, they think, we've kind of got the way of living kind of nailed. We kind of are awesome. I mean, if we could trace back, if some of you guys were here when we talked about Hellenism, but you could go all the way back and trace the, sort of the roots of Western civilization to Greek philosophy and art and culture and sort of the, the Greek democracy. All of politics even kind of has their roots in Greece. And the Greeks imagine themselves to be incredibly bright and talented and wonderful people. And they would look at the way that the Christians are living and embracing a new life that's apart from Hellenism, the sort of Greek way of being and living and celebrating the perfect human ideal. And he would say, that our Greek would say, that the way Christians are living is crazy. The way that they embrace people, the way that they sort of have taken in people who don't belong anywhere else, people who have been forgotten, that's crazy. No one, it is absurd that Christians would live that way. Paul says in his letter to um, the church in Corinth, he says this, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you, it's on the screen too, but in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, he says this, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, meaning the people who belong to, to Jesus, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, or foolishness to the Greeks. The way in which we talk about and live and celebrate who God has made us to be is absurd to the Greeks. It's crazy. And Paul is saying, don't live like the Gentiles. I insist that you don't live. Remember, the Gentile world essentially is the the world, the world apart from God. And he says, don't live like them. This is not who we are. And regarding that world, he says this, this is verse 18. They, meaning the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. To sort of reverse the order of the way this is said a little bit, to sort of reframe it, he's saying the Greeks are ignorant because of their callousness, their hardening of their own hearts, which has led them down a road to greedily search for all things sensual. And he says that isn't the way that we ought to live. Now, anytime in the Bible you see something somehow related to the word foolishness, either in the darkening of understanding or futility of thinking or just the word foolish, it's never ever just about the sort of emotional, or I'm sorry, the intellectual assessment of another person. It's not just how smart they are. It's not just, wow, the Greeks would be better if they knew something different. When you see the word foolishness, it is always tied to the way someone acts or lives. So the original audience isn't thinking to themselves, well, the Greeks are dumb. If they only knew some more stuff, they'd be better. What he's actually saying is, to the original audience, he's saying, they're living unwisely. Their darkening of their understanding necessarily ties to their way of how they act and how they are. He's saying foolishness is about how they live way more than it is about what they know. And he says, when people have begun to have hardened hearts and they begin to live sort of foolishly, the natural sort of outcome or the way that sort of, at least the sort of correspondent there is that there is an undying search for all things sensual, ecstatic experiences. 
And the more we sort of harden our hearts, the more those sort of initial experiences of ecstatic sensuality begin to lose their power. In other words, addiction stuff, habit stuff is progressive. So, for instance, you know, the the sort of natural analogy is to say, at first it's one drink, and then it's two and three, or it's one glance at at a pornographic image, and then it's more, then it's a different kind of image, now it's more radical, and it's more common and more often. Or, at first it's an angry thought, and then it becomes angry words, and then it becomes something more. Someone doesn't murder someone just because, out of, on random. They generally have had a life of building up to that moment. Where there's an acceptance of sort of not okay sorts of kinds of thinking about someone, and then words, and then action, and then plotting, and then sort of finally a resolution that says, I'm so hardened to the idea that that person probably, in some way, the world is a better place with them gone. And so we become okay with something like murder. Paul is saying... All of this stuff is sort of progressive. And the end result of this kind of sort of living is a very deep and profound experience of emptiness. Paul often talks about the way people live that are sort of caught up in this sort of life. He often talks about it using the words of captivity and idolatry. And he says right here that the end experience is a place in which there's no amount of extra sort of like ecstatic sensual experience can be giving you the feeling that you used to have and you wind up wondering what happened. Paul says, we have to abandon that kind of thinking. That kind of life has no place in our current identity as saints, holy people, masterpiece, dwelling place of God. That is just not, doesn't belong here at all anymore. Now, um, he says that life has no longer a place. Look at it, says in verse 20, he says this. That, however, meaning that way of life, that kind of thinking, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil desires. Verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. At this point, he hasn't given us really any instruction. Everything here has been implicit. It's not been explicit by any regard. He's just saying, you don't, have, you don't live like this old former way of thinking and former way of life. I want to read you an excerpt from um, a book that I love by an author I think is absolutely amazing. And I love this story. It's her own story about her own life and her own coming to Jesus, and it's incredibly raw. And you can see in the story this sort of tracing down this road of things that are sensual, that have sort of give ecstatic experiences, that have wound her up in a place of total loneliness and despair. And you get a sense of an old life and a new life. This is, um, maybe some of you have read this book, and it's pretty raw. It's not like sort of typical sort of church reading. Um, it's by Anne Lamott. It's called Traveling Mercies, and I want you to hear her story. And um, I'll have to edit it a little bit because it's a little bit, it's a little bit, you'll know which part I edit, but you'll get it. She says this, oh, I should say this too. She's just had an abortion. She was given a lot of pain medication to help her with the pain. On the first night, she took all of that pain medication. She's been drinking. She's at a place of absolute loneliness. And here's what she says. I got in bed, shaky and sad and too wild to have another drink or take a sleeping pill. I had a cigarette and turned off the light. And after a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. And I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there, and of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this, and I was appalled. 
I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love, as I, and I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because it's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. This experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. And then, but then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in, but I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door when I entered or when I left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape it. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid, and I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction. And I raced home and felt a little cat running along at my heels. And I walked down the dock, past dozens of potted flowers, and under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat. And I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head and said, F it. I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, All right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. There's clearly a life being portrayed in that story of things that are before and things that are yet to come. And the things that are yet to come aren't even fully explained. It's just that there's a life of loneliness and emptiness to which that, that has no place in the present life now moving forward. It's not fully explained. It's just that it's clear when you read this. You go, there's a life that was before and now there's a life that's ahead. And I love how real and how honest and how raw that picture is. Now, in the passage we just read, verse 24 says this, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The word righteousness in Greek actually has debated meanings. The the best sort of way to sort of sum it up is this. The state of him or the state of one who is as they ought to be. I'll say it again. The state of him or the state of one who is as they ought to be. It is a statement about being. It doesn't say it is the way one acts as they ought to act. That's righteousness. It says the state of him who is as he ought to be. The way that action sort of flows out is, is necessarily implied. Now, in this particular passage... There is an old life to which ought, which ought to be jettisoned and a new life which is sort of taken on. In other translations of the Bible, you have this phrase, old man. Not old self, but old man. And Paul's, Paul's sort of calling his people to let go of the old man. The old man is always associated with the first man, Adam, who lived and was in union with Jesus or with, with God. And he had this sort of walking around relationship with God. And he chose to sin, and that man, Adam, died. And Paul says, put off the old man. Put on the new man. The new man, the mo- the new man is Jesus. And if there was ever anybody who embodied more perfectly the idea of being as he ought to be, it's Jesus. 
And Paul says, put off the old man, this Adam, and put on the new man, because this is with whom you're identified. And he says, with all of this stuff that I've just said, he leads himself down to one word, which he says so often in his writing, which is the word therefore. It's coming up in a second. Paul's writing and he says, you've heard all, don't live like the Gentiles. Let go of this old life, put on the new life. And he's making the strong challenge to live as God intended you to be. And then he says the word therefore. The old man that has no longer a place in your life. Now there's a new life. And he begins to say that the old life is not your way of, your new way of being. And he says sin is the result of this sort of hardening of people's hearts in which they say, in which they live out of this sort of place in which <clears throat> the, 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 the work God wants to do in our own life is sort of silenced or blocked or prevented. And he says you don't belong to your former way of life even though it can, that God's work can still be resisted, the one that's present, you can still be resisted now. And he says, therefore. And he begins to talk about structures that promote the identity we've already been given with a high sensitivity to what God is doing and a low level of callousness in our own hearts. So check this out, verse 25, he says this. <clears throat> put off, this, uh, let's see, he says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor as we are all members of one body. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. He says, therefore, after you've heard all this stuff, he says, put off falsehood. The word falsehood in Greek is this word right here. I'll show you on the screen. Pseudos. Pseudos, which means something that is not as it seems. Pseudo. You've heard the word pseudo before. Perhaps you've heard of someone who told you they went and traveled some faraway place and they came back with a Rolex that they bought for 20 bucks. Pseudos. (laughs) Pseudos. <laughs> when I was in Turkey, I was, it was 1997, I was traveling when I was in college, and I, um, I, I bought a leather jacket in Istanbul for the equivalent of about $8. <laughs> One million Turkish lira. And there I was in this jacket that smelled like it was going to melt my face. I mean, it just smelled like somehow it was toxic. Pseudos. Maybe you've had the experience of someone, and not that anyone here has ever, you know, seen this or done this, but, uh, um, but you've heard of this thing where people sell movies for an incredibly cheap rate on the street somewhere, and it's a movie that's already in the theater. Amazing how they got a copy, rushed to DVD, and there it is on the street for a dollar, and you can watch the video. If you've ever seen one of these, I know none of you have. If you've ever seen a movie that's been pirated, what you see is someone, you actually can tell someone's holding up a video camera in a movie theater. You can see heads moving in front of them, the screen moves. If someone sneezes, you get that as part of the audio track to really give you the authentic feel of being in the theater. Pseudos. Now, on the one hand, Paul's saying, hey, you guys, don't lie to each other, which is absolutely true. And he's talking about the community of people that are gathered in the sort of Christian, you know, these are the churches. He's talking about those people gathered together. And he's saying don't lie to each other, but he's saying something else put off falsehood, may have a a bigger, more sophisticated, deeper concept idea built in there. Which is to say this. It is possible for people to live, especially if you grew up in the church, to have adopted a really wonderful, healthy idea, which is to say, if there's anything that's going on in your life that's not awesome, probably should bury it. And so you can live out of a pseudo-life in which everybody will know and experience you as this one thing, but you are not as you seem. And Paul's exhortation, his call, his sort of invitation to the people is to live as fully integrated people in which the visible life and the invisible hidden life are the same. 
It's where we get the modern day notion of the word integrity. And he says, he says, you have to do away with things that are pseudo about you. Most difficult thing to do when you have a fake, when you have a, a, a thing that you're hiding in your own life is to be honest about it with people around you. It is the most difficult thing in the world to be that exposed to say, I no longer want to be false. I no longer want to live a pseudo life. I want you to know about this because I owe it to you because we belong together. It's the most difficult thing in the world. And Paul says, put off falsehood. Don't play the game. Because it hurts us so much to hear the truth uttered about ourselves from our own voice, to feel naked and exposed. And Paul says that sensitivity, that sort of uncomfortableness, that discomfort from whatever that is, can be blocked off and it can be sort of subdued and it can be buried away. And the more insensitive we become, the more likely we are to chase down things that are sensual with every impulse we read about in verse 17. Now Paul gives a list of structures that support the kind of identity we've been given, we've been declared about for three chapters in this book, in this letter. It's not an exhaustive list. It is a list of things that makes incredibly practical sense. He doesn't cover every possible thing, but he covers enough to give you a sense of things that ought to be let go of, part of the former way of life, and things that ought to be adopted as part of the new way of being, to live as, or to be as one who ought to be. So here it is, verse 26 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You get a sense here as you're reading this. There's an old way of life, stealing, which you took stuff that didn't belong to you, and the new way of life is working hard and giving to people. This is sort of the way those things are replaced. 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may, be, that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul gives this sense. Here's some things that ought to die, that things that have already been declared dead that you'll probably have to kill. That makes sense. There's things that have been declared dead. They're part of your old life. You still have to kill them. <laughs> It's sort of like the, it, it literally, I was, we were trying to think last night, we were talking about things that, like, animals that, that die that still run around after they're, after they're sort of dead. Like, all manner of sort of poultry <laughs> does that, I guess. You cut their head off. They still run around. That's where we get the expression, chicken with their head cut off. You, I, don't, I, I didn't grow up on a barn, but, you know, I've heard this to be true. If you cut the chicken's head off, it will still run around. I don't know, I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but it's already dead, and kill it. You maybe perhaps you, you know, you, I remember when I was a kid, I watched a cat kill a lizard and their tail just moved around for a little while after that. And I grabbed the tail as weird as it was. And I threw it in a jar and watched it slowly stop moving. But I remember thinking it's still alive, but it's dead. Paul's saying there's a part of your old life that's already been declared dead. You have a new life, but maybe there's some parts of those things that still have to die, even though they're already dead. Let me ask you, are there things in your life to which you go, I've sort of cut off the sensitivity to what God wants to do in my life and allowed things that are part of a dead life to still have permission to be there. Things that are not me, are there things that you do, things that you're a part of that you go, this isn't me, I can't believe I'm, this isn't, this is part of an old life that I've already abandoned. Paul's saying, let those things go. And I should tell you, the mistake people like me make, and I mean teachers, that people like me make. And Paul uses the same analogy through a lot of his letters, but he, and sometimes he talks about it as clothing. Take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. And, and 
when we talk about the old man and the new man, sometimes we make it seem like it is so incredibly easy and not difficult. See, it's so hard already. We know. Look at that. Yeah, that, she might need to change. Um, <laughs> I won't do it. Um, but there's a part of us that says, this is so easy. I remember, like, the analogy I got when I was growing up in the church was this sort of picture of, um, like, you, okay, let's suppose in 1997, you were in an after-work softball league and you got a T-shirt. And you're wearing that T-shirt and you still have it to this day and you do your gardening and then occasionally when you have to, you know, you have to wash the car or something, you just take it, you just use it on the car or whatever else it is. And, and, you know, you sort of have this dirty shirt that you still have around. And the analogy we used to get, you know, if you grew up in the church was like this. And let's suppose you got invited to go to the Oscars. You know, you wouldn't wear your dirty softball shirt. You'd wear a new tuxedo or maybe you'd wear a gown or whatever, but you wouldn't then put the gown, you wouldn't, you, not only would you not have the, sh- you, not only would you wear, wear the gown, you would not ever put the gown over the dirty shirt, or in my case, a tuxedo, in case you're wondering, but you wouldn't put that over this dirty softball shirt, you would take it off and you put on the new thing, and everybody's like, that's a wonderful idea, I love that, that's so simple. The only thing is, it's really more painful than that. <laughs> I mean, Paul is saying you're going to have to live a life that's consistent with your identity, and your identity is one in which you say that the world, the world and its systems are broken and it doesn't work. It, and that, that way of sort of living is one in which the world will say, you're crazy. That's painful. Maybe some of you have rediscovered, or you, have, you remember, or because of the movies that are coming out now, you sort of have begun to sort of remember what these things are like, the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. And I didn't see the latest one, but this comes from the latest, the latest book, uh, the latest movie that's um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's a scene in which a kid named Eustace, which his name is so closely tied with the word useless, which is totally appropriate for his character. But this kid, he's walking around, at, you know, some of you are like, that's really mean. It's, it's a fictional character, just remember. Um, but he's, he's, he's on this ship called the Dawn Treader, and he finds himself on an island, and he's walking around, and he's, um, he finds a dragon who's almost dead. And he walks and sees the dragon die. And then he goes into the, this cave where the dragon is. And he finds all kinds of treasure. And he thinks to himself, I'm going to try and take all this treasure as much as I can. I'm going to stuff it in my pockets. And I'm going to go back to the ship. And I'm going to try and figure out how nobody will know that I have all this money, this treasure in my own pockets or whatever. And as he's making his way back to the ship, he realizes he's turned into a dragon himself. And he's not like, yay, I'm a dragon. He's like, oh my gosh, this is miserable. This is a horrible scenario. And so he has to go back to the ship as a dragon, and explain to the people that are on the ship that he's who he is and all this kind of stuff as best as he can. And finally he gets this sort of silent beckoning from the Jesus God lion, Aslan. <laughs> I'm sure that's how C.S. Lewis wanted me to say it. Um, this sort of God figure, Aslan, and kind of beckons him to come with him. And he says, essentially, if you're going to not be a dragon anymore, you're going to have to wash off in this well. And he goes to this well, and then he says, what I need you to do is undress. And, and Eustace looks at himself just in his dragon skin and isn't wearing any clothes, and he begins to think, how am I going to do this? So he assumes it's kind of like a lizard or any other reptile with kind of molts or shed skin. He tries to peel off his own skin, and he realizes his skin comes off kind of easily, and he takes off his skin, and there it is in a pile next to him. And he kind of like, all right, I guess that must be it. And he j- tries to go into the well, but there's still another layer of skin on him. So he does it three more times. It's like, well, that doesn't, that's not that hard to get that skin off. Three times he does it. And finally, Aslan the lion looks at him and says, you're going to have to let me undress you. Now, I want you to think about your own life just for a moment in that phrase. Probably one of the things that you are able to retain your own dignity in in your life, unless you've encountered some kind of physical, you know, sort of limitation, is your ability to dress and undress yourself. That is the moment where you don't need anybody else to help you. And a lot, most of us don't want anybody else to even be around. I mean, we're like, 
unless you're married, you're, even then you're like, just give me a sec. You know, like, and here's this picture. You're going to have to let me undress you. It means everything that you don't want to be exposed will be exposed. It means I will see you for who you are. And this is what Aslan says to Eustace, the dragon. And he says, I'm going to have to do it in my way. And Eustace begins to talk about how the, 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 um, Aslan puts his own claws into Eustace. It's right here. I'll read you this sort of account of the event. Here it is. This is Eustace talking to the other members of the ship. He says this, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my own heart. And when I began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He says, he says it's actually, I didn't put it in there, but now I'm saying it anyways. But he, the next line is something like, and it hurt like Billy O, which I thought, what in the world does Billy O mean? But that's what he says. He says, oh, and it hurt like Billy O. It was so... Billy O, awful. I don't know what that means. But he said it hurt so bad. It was such a painful act. And then he says, and Aslan turned me back into a boy. And I think probably more accurately to to look at the story as it actually unfolds is, Aslan peeled back all of the things that were not me to reveal the one who is as he ought to be. The one that was there. The one that he had intended to be there. To reiterate, Paul is talking to these people and saying, you ought to live a life that is so different than any of the other lives around you. It should look and feel and react and be different. And he says, it's not something that you can do on your own power. You have to let me do it. Talking about Jesus. You have to let Jesus do it. Let me give you a way that we kind of talk about this and putting, sort of putting off and putting on. Maybe this reframes this for you a little bit differently. Maybe this helps you. I hope it does. A lot of us have orientations toward Jesus that have sort of been given to us or we've adopted or assumed, especially if you're new about what Jesus is all about. But these are sort of parts of speech called prepositions. Prepositions are words that explain the orientation from certain things to each other. So they're words like over and under and on and beneath and things like that. You're not supposed to end sentences with them. So I shouldn't say, you know, you don't want to end a, uh, prepositions is a word you don't want to end a sentence with. Preposition. Okay, with me? Now, here are some prepositions I want you to think about, and then we're going to pray through these things, and we're going to bring the band back up in a second. Now, some of, you, some of you have an orientation toward Jesus, which is an underneath orientation. Now, it's true that Jesus is over all things. Paul makes it very clear. Jesus is present at the time of creation. He is, all things are subject to him. Everything is under him. But here's what I want to highlight. Some of you have an, a relationship with Jesus in which you are underneath him, in which you live in the fear that you are constantly disappointing him. You're constantly looking at him, and he's going, he's just shaking his head like, oh, man. <laughs> Knew it. <laughs> Knew they were a mistake. Some of you have that kind of, under, that kind of understanding, the relationship with Jesus in which he's mostly disappointed with you. So your motivation to put on a new self is because Jesus is already disappointed with you because you're letting him down. Some of you have an orientation, others of you have an orientation with Jesus that is um, a little bit more seemingly wonderful. It's what you say, the orientation kind of in relationship to Jesus is one in which you do things for Jesus. You're sort of, you have a for orientation. Well, because he's good, I'm going to do things for him. I'm going to live a certain way. I'm going to adopt this new kind of way of life because Jesus is good. A lot of Christians have this attitude. It's the reason why I serve the poor and needy, why I have some kind of social justice bent in my own life because God is who he is. I should do things for him. One way to look at it. Lastly, probably the, this is probably the most difficult one to admit. A lot of us have an orientation toward Jesus in which we are above him. 
in which we go, Jesus, it's really great that you're here and you do some wonderful things in my own life and maybe someday I get to go be with God or whatever, however that works. I but I just know that business, I have a secular life that to which, maybe you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, but I have a secular life to which business is business or my own life is my own life and my church life is over here and you're not allowed to be over here, Jesus. So you kind of have an orientation that's over Jesus or above Jesus. Now, Paul uses an expression throughout all of his letters. And it's throughout all of this book of Ephesians. He uses this expression over and over again, a prepositional phrase in which he keeps saying it over. We've already said it a few times in this message. In Christ. That the orientation of putting on a new self and putting off the old self is one in which it is a, it's a cooperative in Christ relationship. In which there is a mutuality being shared in which the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we're intimate with him, the more he shapes us into this kind of person, this new person we are already declared to be. You ever been around? Anybody in here been, anybody sitting next to someone who they've been married to for more than 50 years? Anybody? Every service has been someone. Okay, when you're around people that have been married for 50 years, they begin to sort of resemble each other in so many ways. They talk the same. They complete each other's sentences. They can anticipate what the other person is going to do. And they're able to do this in such a way that seems endearing. And everybody goes, that's wonderful. Look how long they've been together. They've actually been, to shape, been able to shape each other. It's a beautiful picture. The same thing happens in Christ. The more that you are with Him, the more that you begin to walk with and understand and be sort of in relationship with Him and begin to shed the pseudo exterior with Him, the more He begins to shape you into being the person you already are. The expression Paul uses is about being in Christ. And there no longer has to be any sort of thing, this sort of old self has no, no part of being part of this new person in Christ. There are structures and things that sort of highlight our identity in Jesus. And there are things that ought to be let go. But the principal orientation is ours in Christ. Why don't you do this as we're wrapping up? Why don't you close your eyes for a second? What I want you to do is I'm going to give you just sort of a, a brief your own opportunity to sort of shed any of that sort of pseudo-falsehood with Jesus. And what I want you to do just for a second is sort of identify where you are. What sort of prepositional, what's your default prepositional relationship with Jesus? Some of you have lived for a long time or at least understood Jesus to be one under, like who you are underneath and you're so afraid, and to use sort of a cliched phrase, you're so afraid of letting Jesus down. And so here's my prayer for you. Would you know, Jesus, would you give them the sense that they were never holding you up? God, in some way, would you reveal to them how much you deeply love them, that you call them once they belong to you, that you call them holy and saints and masterpiece and dwelling place. And God, would you give them a sense about what it's like to live in you. Some of us in here have the experience of sort of um, looking at, at Jesus and saying, I want you to be part of my life, but only, only a part of my life. Jesus, would there be a sense, we pray, Jesus, would there be a sense in these people's lives, those of us who have, have, who have this at times, myself included, would there be a sense, a renewed sensitivity to not blocking out what you intend to do? So there's not this sort of end road of emptiness and loneliness that, God, you are a good and loving and powerful and mighty God. 
who wants to restore and to build us up and to give us a life we never could have imagined, probably one that's so in some way inconveniencing to our own lives and so good and rich at the same time. And lastly, God, for those of us who maybe have replaced intimacy with doing stuff for you, and we've begun, to law, we've begun to lose what it means to just sort of walk with and to be with and to be in you. God, would you give those people a sense today, Jesus, that if they never were able to lift another finger to do anything else, any other right or good thing in their life, that if they were never able to do anything else, you would still call them child. You would still call them son or daughter and you would pick them up and whisper in their ear how much you love them. God, for all of us, we want to be shaped into being the kind of people we're already declared people who are in Jesus. Would you reveal to us the blind spots, the addictions, the habits, the desensitized hearts that are leading us down a path that isn't consistent with our new identity? Today would we get it that it's not about doing stuff for you or being underneath you in that sort of oppressive sense or being over or above you, but that we would live lives that are with you and in you. As we pray these words, as we sing together, would you hear our prayer as a collective prayer of people singing in unison about the life that you give us, a new life, a whole life. In your name, Jesus. Amen.